Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is part one of a chat I had with Lisa Marr, bassist and vocalist of Vancouver, British Columbia's Cub. Before you join Cub, you're already kind of an integral part of the Vancouver music scene, being part of community radio and things of that nature. So I'm wondering if you'd kind of set the scene, the musical scene in Vancouver that Cub kind of grew out of, Cub was born into. A lot of us were galvanizing around CITR radio at the University of British Columbia. And I was going to school there from about 80, I think I went there from 86 to 88. And I'd moved from small town British Columbia um, to a place where, you know, the most alternative thing was, you know, like seeing a Michael Jackson video or something. There was no like, there was no sort of alternative music scene. I didn't know anything about alternative quote unquote music or independent music. I listened to AM radio. I loved AM radio. I always grew up with that. I loved songs. I love pop songs. Um, you know, and I think Corey Hart played, you know, Kamloops one time. We lived in Vernon that was a little ways away. So, and Billy Idol came through, you know, that was punk. Like Billy Idol was punk, right? Yeah. The dude that had a stray cat shirt and a, you know, a, a faux hawk. And we were just like, oh my gosh, this guy is so out there. Um, but, you know, when I, I, I went to UBC in my um, second year of university, I went to community college for the first year. And then it was kind of a a mind opener for me. I started finding out about all these things I didn't know anything about, Um, you know, political organizations and cultural organizations. And they had this really cool like video show on the public access station. It was called Soundproof. And I started seeing, I remember seeing this video by the fall and I was just like, what is this? You know, it was just so crazy to me. And then um, I actually got involved with CITR because I was a member of Amnesty International. And um, we were doing these radio programs. So I was learning how to make radio programs for um, Amnesty International. And so I was actually, we were recording on tape and I was learning how to cut on tape um, at that time. And so I got introduced to everybody else there and everybody was really cool. And at the same time I was, um, you know, I embarked on a career. I was thought I was going to be a lawyer and then I got derailed by creative writing. So I ended up in the creative writing program just thinking I was going to take one class. And that's what I ended up majoring in. And then there were a lot of radio people in creative writing and, you know, just again, exploring experimental writing as well as, you know, independent music and all these things were happening to me at the same time. So that was about 86, 87. I started doing a, a poetry show at CITR, uh, recording of poetry readings and and posting that. And then I met Randy Iwata and I met Robin Iwata and they were very involved in the radio station. And then um, I met this guy named Bill Baker and then Bill and I started dating and Bill got involved at the radio station. So it was really this kind of insular group. At the same time, there were also independent movie theaters, you know, old single screen theaters. So we were involved in that. And, you know, it was just a time where a lot of things were happening. So that was kind of late 80s. And around that time, this um, fast talking, wired up teenager named um, Nardwar, the human serviette, self <laughs> self-named. <laughs> I, of course, knew him by his other name. I don't know if that's, you know, if I, I can't even say the other name, but, you know, he came in, he was this youngster, you know, right out of West Van High or whatever the high school was over there. So, and he'd been putting on these gorilla punk shows in his school gym. And so he started doing a Friday show, which he is still doing to this day. Like it's 3.30 to 4.30 or 3.30 to 4 something than the Nardwar the Human Serviette show. So, you know, it was all part of this thing. There were all these... Um, young folks, um, you know, I think the people that we thought were the old timers were probably, you know, 25 or something. They were like the (laughs) the old guys uh, that have been doing radio forever. But, you know, there was this kind of vibe that anything could happen. And the radio station was kind of put at the end of this long hall. It was sort of out of the way. And, And also in that hall, I think it was the Gay Lesbian Alliance Club or whatever the name was then. It was way before everyone was talking about LGBTQ, but um, the Gay Lesbian Club. And I think maybe Amnesty was down there. And and there was a joke that someone made, like if they'd thrown a bomb down that hallway, they would have eradicated every radical on campus just in that one (laughs) strip. So CITR was at the end of that. 
and uh, we could really do anything we want. People were doing broadcasting shows without wearing any clothes. There was a, you know, a pot machine that served beer, all kinds of shenanigans got up in there because no one was looking, no one saw what was going on. So there was this kind of anarchic, joyful spirit where, you know, and some people were serious. They were doing news, like people wanted to be newscasters or sportscasters. Some people were doing hard news, but they were mingling with the, you know, the reggae guy and the rockabilly girl and, you know, just different shows were emerging. So. You know, that just kind of set the stage. And then um, Nardwar just, you know, he had this band, The Evaporators, that had been going, you know, since he was, I don't know, 15 or 16. So it had already was well established. And I was like, everyone's in bands. Like, I'm interviewing these, you know, traveling <laughs> musicians, but I want to be in a band. Because really what I loved more than anything uh, since I was a kid was just simply to sing. Like I said, I loved pop music and I loved singing. I was in the school choirs. I was in the school musicals. I just, and that was the one thing, you know, I think everyone has that thing. Like, what did you love before you knew it was cool to love it or that you should appreciate it in a certain way? Like just what comes out of your soul? What comes out of your body as a, as a three-year-old child? Well, for me, it was reading and singing. I loved, I loved words. I loved the sound of words. I loved looking at words. I loved, uh, you know, I was an early talker and, and I loved to sing. So, you know, that was, I, I wanted in on this moment in time where everybody was having all this fun and being in bands and, you know, getting out there on stage. So I just basically would, you know, complain to anyone who would listen. And, and finally Nardwar said, okay, like <laughs> we, we have no bass player. The bass player dropped out. Little did I know the bass player didn't really drop out. They were kicking the bass player out, but that was another story. They said they had no <laughs> bass player. And if I could be ready in five days, there was a show coming up in five days. So if I could be ready in five days with, wow. to learn 10 songs and more importantly, get a cool outfit. That was the thing that was <laughs> like the stipulation. You must have a cool outfit. Um, so I said, yes, I will do this, you know, and I was, you know, a little bit older at this point. Um, I think I was at that point, I think I was actually 22 or 23. I wasn't like, you know, a, a, a youngster, um, Nardwar was way younger than I was but I really wanted in on this thing, you know? So, so I did, I had this roommate, you know, it was again, the era of like, there were a million ramshackle houses uh, where you could live in, in Vancouver for very cheap rent. And I happened to um, be living in a house with Bill Baker, who was again, my partner at the time. And then um, Scott Chernoff, who has gone on to other musical fame and, and Jennifer Menard was his girlfriend at the time. And they're still together all these years later, but wow. he was, had, had been a bass player and, but he had changed to guitar. So he said, you can, you can borrow my bass. I've got an SG bass and here it is. And, and then, then I was like, okay, well, I love the Ramones. So I'll just listen to these first two Ramones records over and over. And I'll just sort of figure this out. And he kind of showed me, well, this is a, you know, a, this is a G whatever. Um, and so I just learned, you know, I learned very quickly. And that's the thing about bass. You, it, you know, it, obviously it takes a long time to become good at it, but it takes virtually no time to be able to play. So, um, that was it. And I just kind of figured it out and I just played over and over again for these you know, four or five days. And then we had like maybe a, one practice or something. And I feel like the first practice was the day that, um, I don't know if this makes sense. Cause I don't know, I don't remember dates, but I, I feel like that practice or one of our very first practices was the release day of steel wheels, the <laughs> Rolling Stones album. So we, I went, I met them at this practice space, the evaporators who then was Scott Livingston on drums and Dave Carswell playing guitar and, and Nard, of course, on keyboards. So I, I met them at this meat locker where they were practicing in downtown Vancouver. And um, and that was our first practice. And, and we had to take a break so they could all get into Scott's. Um, he, he collected Volkswagen. I think he had a, you know, a Beetle and a bus and all this stuff, a dune buggy. And so we got in the car and we had to listen to Steel Wheels. And I was so confused. I thought like, wow, I thought the Rolling Stones were really like uncool, but here's these guys <laughs> that love the Rolling Stones. Like, is it a joke? Is it not like, and that was the thing you can never really tell with the evaporators, right? Is it a joke? Are we serious? Is it, you know, <laughs> do they really love this stuff or are they teasing me or testing me or whatever? So anyways, that was the beginning of that. And, um, you know, and, and that was a great uh, entree into music. And it taught me a lot, you know, cause Nardware never wanted the evaporators to headline. It was always about, you know, you put on the show and the evaporators would always play first and then there would be these other things. And and it was sort of making this space for everybody to come together. It wasn't about like, oh, our band is so important. It's like our band is the least important, but 
we are here because we love to make music, but we're here more because we want to bring these people in. And he, you know, some of these shows became huge, as you know, like the Fugazi show was nuts. And there was like a mud honey show. And, and sometimes I'd be working the door and my sister and I would be like security on one of these side doors. And <laughs> I just would be like fighting all these mods. Like, no, 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 you can't sneak in the side door. You've got to pay. Like everyone's got to pay because it's going <laughs> to the bands, you know, and That's right. get like all, you know, crazy, but you know, that set the stage. And and so that was kind of, to me, the new era. I really feel like the kind of the evaporators and Nardwar coming on the scene was the beginning. You know, there've been the pointed sticks and the modernettes and, and DOA and all these people that we loved and were really influential, but this felt new. And it, and it really was kind of the beginning of, of DIY in a way. I mean, punk had been DIY too, but, but to me, this was a bit more about like all ages and less about drugs and like posturing and more about like, everybody's welcome. Like every kooky kid from the high school was welcome. And, and, you know, it just, it, it felt more open to me. And um, so that was the start. So I was wondering if you talk a bit about those and how you eventually connected with Robin and Valerie. Yeah, well, it did kind of stem out of that, you know, the, those early days, like I was saying. And then it got to the point where I, they would, in the evaporators, they would lovingly, lovingly in quotes, call me the gimmick. Sometimes they would just call me the gimmick because <laughs> right? I was the girl bass player, right? So, you know, there was this sort of joke about that. But, it, you know, there is a certain truth to that. It was always going to be... Um, the Nardwar show. And, and I was like, I want to be, I want to be writing more songs. I want to be up front. I want to be singing, you know? So, um, so I thought, well, I got to kind of get into something different. So I traveled for all, I came back and then I was in a band called the bombshells for a little while, kind of an all girl, uh, thing. And they were more kind of, um, grunge meets, um, hair bands. So that wasn't quite my thing. Like they were, you know, and they were, <laughs> awesome. And uh, that was kind of a different vibe, but that wasn't quite my thing. And then I was um, in an, another band um, for a minute. Can't even remember what that band was called. But in that band, um, again, there, there was uh, two guys and me, I think. And at one point on stage, the person who was the lead singer of this band turned to me during the set and said, get your part right. Like, and so wow. that was like, okay, this also is not for me because um, it's never really 
been about getting the part right for me because I'm not that kind of a musician, right? I'm not that kind of player. I'm a very intuitive player. And to me, it was about um, connection. So I was like, okay, this is not for me either. So it's sort of like, you know, the porridge is too hot. The porridge is too cold. You're trying to find your, <laughs> right. your space on the, on the scene here. And then I thought, well, you know, the only way this is going to work is if I start something instead of joining something that's already going, I need to, we need, I need to start from, you know, the ground up. So who would, you know, be foolish enough to join this um, proposition. So, you know, Robin and I had talked about band stuff and, you know, gotten to know each other quite well and whatnot over the years at CITR. And so I said, you know, you've been thinking about playing guitar. Like, what do you think? Like, maybe this is a chance and she's like okay and bill said well i have this <laughs> guitar you know i could loan you my old kent guitar that he had played when he was in the evaporator for a minute and um and then yeah valerie i know valerie is valerie but in the band she was known as um valeria fellini oh, okay. <laughs> and then now she's known as valeria so it's always uh on a theme but i'm, I'm gonna say valerie because that's how i knew valerie back in the day but and valerie we knew from uh uh, taking tickets at the Ridge Theater, so the Art House Theater. Huh, wow. So Bill had worked there. Valerie had been a ticket taker. Valerie also had her own candy store called Lee's Candies, which is like every um, child's dream to work in a candy store and make candy. So that's what Valerie was up to. I think Robin, even at that point, already was maybe working at Zulu as well as um, going to school. And, and Robin worked at Zulu for a long time and knew knew a lot about music and and cared a lot about local music. Had a show on CITR called. Um, Hanford Nuclear Pizza Pie that was all Pacific Northwest bands. And um, so, and yeah, we all knew each other. So, and then Valerie actually knew how to play drums. Valerie was the most accomplished um, drummer or musician amongst all of us, had played <laughs> drums, knew, had a drum kit, like, you know, and had been sort of taught by Dimwit, who was kind of a very famous um, punk drummer on the scene here. I think Dimwit played in DOA and, and was like, you know, big, um, bear of a guy and and Valerie just knew everybody she had managed bands and she she again loved local music and um and was always doing stuff for other people always helping always putting on shows always you know making posters she's a really great artist so was Robin they're both really great artists so you know she, but again I kind of thought like well isn't it time for you to you know get onto the stage instead of just helping you know um you know Thank goodness for the helpers, but sometimes it's nice to to take a bow and be recognized um, after you've helped all these other people. So she was kind of lured into it. Um, also, on the premise, I think that we would also like never headline; that it would always be kind of a small, goofy thing that we would do, and um, it would it would always be real small time and just friends getting together. So that's kind of how it started. And like I said, I lived in this rambly shambly house and there was a um you know a basement and uh i'd been i played some music with scott and jennifer as well and so they'd already kind of made um it's a little bit soundproof i think you could still hear things but you know had done a little bit to make a, a practice space so that's that was it and then um scott and jennifer ended up moving out after a while my sister moved in there was always kind of a changing cast of characters but that was always our, our practice space and so we just started i think we the first practice was may 15th 1992 and wow. um because i know because we broke up exactly five years later may 15th uh, 1997 so i know that Amazing. it's exactly a five-year huh. um capsule we're talking about here um, and then we had the first show on, we would always have like a summer solstice party. So we had a big party on uh, June 21st, um, 1992. And that was our first show. And this rumpus room was like tiny. And so all these people were kind of jammed in there. And I think we played six songs. It was like a Johnny Cash cover. I think at that point <laughs> we had Chico, maybe Someday was written, um, a party. There were like a handful of songs that we had. And then... Yeah, this Johnny Cash cover, like Blue Train, like something really weird. I, goodness <laughs> knows why good. that out of anything um, and something else. I think maybe this Tommy, so the Tommy Rose song, um, Sweet, maybe Sweet Pea was in there that Valerie brought that one in. And, you know, Robin couldn't play standing up, like literally could not play standing up. And Amazing. and so we were just like, why don't worry then just sit down like you feel better sitting down, like sit down like if that's mm -hmm. fine. Valerie had a very unique way of playing kind of a weird sort of jazz I don't even know what to call it, but when people would try to play her parts on these songs later, they literally cannot play them because they're so mm. unique to her. So we had that. And then, 
And then I was just kind of played like rhythm bass. I didn't even really, you know, I didn't really play bass like you should play bass. I was just kind of, that was kind of like a filler instrument so I could sing and play at the same time. And right from the get go, people just responded. You know, people, people really, there was something about it. I don't know what, but, you know, Grant sometimes talks about that it was kind of the antithesis to grunge and people were kind of, a little bit overwhelmed by all this heavy music or that it seemed maybe like a boys club or maybe there was just like this kind of moment but like even at that show you could feel it there was something just in there where people were having fun and it was very playful and interactive and and just it was a great experience and then a few months maybe it was was it then i don't know i, I can't remember but we ended up getting on this bill for this big canada day show at ubc um and that was kind of the thing that kind of took it from like the basement out to really took it out to the public because there were thousands of people there and we were just on at the same time that this uh canadian rapper named snow was on on the other stage so because of that people were kind of like Ugh, and then came over <laughs> to where we were on the small stage and we were sort of like behind this fence and then we played and then people were just literally going nuts and it was just like what is going on here like it just seemed so funny to us like kind of some weird <laughs> joke that we hadn't really planned on but you know, people were like, I want to buy stuff. Like we didn't really bring anything, you know, like later on we would huh. become these merchandise queens. But back then we were like, oh, what? Like we had like four t-shirts and they're gone. But, you know, it was also <laughs> a time where there was some independent radio stations kind of starting that were focusing on more indie music. Um, and so they were playing this stuff and then, you know, much music was playing this stuff and there were a lot of venues. Um, and there were a lot of people that were um, into independent music like shopping at their little record stores you know there were every town had a record store and every town could access um a college radio station and and cbc was playing the stuff it was you know the golden years of brave new waves and um all that stuff um so yeah it was just kind of right time right place right combination of friends and uh it just kind of it, it took us by surprise for sure so how did songs kind of come about throughout the course of Cub? Did you kind of um, jam them out? Did you kind of members bring them into writing sessions? Can you maybe walk us through that process? Yeah, at the time I worked as a, I had a day job. I was a, a secretary for a, a company of um, boat pilots downtown in, <laughs> in Vancouver. So they had to, it's kind of like valet parking for giant ships. They have to get on the ship and they have to park the ship. So it turned out it was a sort of a summer job that I had when I was still at UBC. And then it turned into this kind of full time job. So I had that job, um, which meant, you know, it was, it was a pretty chill job and it um, and it paid well. So it kind of supported me and it was not work I had to take home. So I it was probably the most creative time of my life because I, you know, I, I had all this time afterwards and they were later on, they would just say, like, if you want to take time off to tour, go ahead. So I worked there oh, pretty wow. much the whole time. And there were some years that we were touring nine months of the year, and I would just always be able to kind of come back and slide into this job. So, um, but it, I had a lot of free time. So I would just write songs at work on notepads, like on, on phone huh. message pads, you know? So Motel 6 was actually a song I wrote for the Evaporators. That was on, that was an early Cub song, but that had already been written and actually performed a couple of times with the Evaporators. And so hmm. I would just Right. You know, I was a creative writing major. I liked to write. I was part of a small um, press called the Black Cat Collective with two other friends, um, Anju and Rob Houtson from my CI, or my uh, creative writing days at uh, um, UBC. So I was a writer, uh, you know, and I had been a published writer and I'd been in anthologies and, you know, I was writing short stories. And, and so all this song stuff kind of came out of that. Plus, I obviously loved pop music and you know, I would spend hours as a preteen kind of listening to the radio with my friend and like memorizing lyrics and like we do this name that tune thing. So I had just, you know, a catalog of thousands of kind of like 70s pop songs in my head. And, um, you know, I just I love that style of writing. So the songs are very in that mode. There's nothing that very experimental about them. They're, you know, maybe sometimes the subject matter is a little different, but you know, they have a, they have verses and they have choruses and mm -hmm. sometimes they have a tiny bridge or something, but they're, they're very, <laughs> they're, they're a pop song construction. So I would just, again, write these and then I would bring them in and then they would just come up with their parts and, you know, yeah, I would have the sort of structure and I would play it on the bass and that was it. We didn't really jam. There was, we were not a jammy <laughs> band. Um, but later on, Lisa G, she was always kind of a fan of the jam. She, you know, she'd be like, let's jam. You know, you're like, Let's Ugh. jam. 
But um, <laughs> no, that was not generally the way the songs came about. Someone would come in, usually me, but you know, everybody had their turn of writing songs. Valerie wrote some songs, Robin wrote songs, Lisa wrote songs. So you would bring in the, the, the shell of the song and then we would all just kind of fill it out and, and just rehearse the hell of it. We were, we rehearsed a lot. We rehearsed like probably two to three times a week, like every week. And then, you know, once things got going, we were playing shows almost every weekend. We would just, we would play anything. We would play, you know, clubs, we would play all ages things. We would play like we literally played a cat show one time in Nanaimo. Like we were just we pajama parties. Like we would someone would a backyards. Like you know uh, places with booze, places without booze. You know it didn't. It really didn't matter to us. We just played all the time, all the time, all the time. And and so we were just constantly going and and writing. And then eventually also often recording. So it just kind of went from there. Now um, that Canada Day gig you mentioned, um, did you guys have recorded material out at that point, or was those fans that had come to see you just based on pajama party gigs and building that kind of cult following? Well, again, I don't think anybody. I mean, there might have been twenty people there to see us, but the rest of the people just were there. You know what I mean? It okay. wasn't like we right. even necessarily had a following. Um, I mean, we did a, a little bit, and you know, again, being in that support system of CITR, and we were on some show early on, and. Gene Smith was there and that's how that sort of came about recording that album at Adam Sloan's well it was in his bedroom actually it wasn't even a studio like we started the first seven inch was recorded in his room we we're all just like sitting on his bed like recording this <laughs> stuff. and Gene was saying like I don't I don't what am I supposed to do as a producer like I've never produced anything before we're like well you know I guess you just listen and tell us what you think like we were just everyone was figuring <laughs> things awesome. out so much and Adam was actually you know he was doing tracks for his sister who was a a rapper terror t he was the beat assassinator and she was terror oh, nice. t so you know he was just kind of coming out of a whole other thing but it didn't matter it didn't matter that he was into completely different music you know we knew him from the station he was supporting us he was getting his studio kind of up and running you know it was just all a big experiment so and that was the thing with cub is that at that show most of those people had never heard of us would never have heard of us they were at a giant stadium thing on canada day it just happened but there's again something about the music something about the presentation something about that moment in time that people were like oh this is fun this mm. is fresh like i like this this is funny like this is cute like you know i get it you know and so that was that was it in a nutshell like that we we played with all kinds of bands we played with rancid we played with bunny grunt we played with you know sloan we played with uh the spinanes we played with sebado we played with they might be giants like all these very disparate bands and we always, you know, did okay. Like there was no point where everyone was like, boo, get off the stage. You know, the, the, maybe they might be giants fans were pretty much indifferent to us, but just because they are very <laughs> focused on, they might be giants. Like you cannot, they're just waiting until they get on the stage. So they'll put up with us, you know, or people, you know, so many people are like, I didn't know you wrote New York city. I didn't know that was a cup song. I know that is a, they might be giant song. So we get right, some right. trickle down fans, you know, from things like that, <laughs> from covers that people do. But, um, but yeah, we could, and I like that challenge. I like that challenge of like, not really, it's not exactly winning over an audience, but trying to connect with any audience in any given environment. That's what I loved about it. It wasn't so much like, oh, this is my craft and I am making, I'm writing these songs. It's like, okay, what's going to happen? You know, how are people going to react to this? What's going to, what's the vibe going to be? You know, like that was what ultimately was interesting. And that's why I loved touring so much. Since we're on the topic, um, maybe share a little bit about um, the connection with the audience, how you guys would foster that by, you know, giving candy out on the side of the stage and being very welcoming and joking on stage. And um, was that just all organically done or were you guys thinking of ways to kind of interact more than the average kind of band does? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, again, just coming out of this sort of DIY scene of zines and, and stuff at the station, there was always giveaways and and that was always kind of a thing from Mint from the very beginning, because before Cub even started, you know, Robin and I were spending a lot of time at the Mint office stuffing envelopes, getting those Windwalker and Tank Hog records out and <laughs> everything would have a handwritten note, you know, and everything would have mm. a sticker. And they, you know, both Randy and Robin really, and Bill to a certain extent too, but loved like, what does the packaging look like? Like, how is this like a gift for someone? Like, mm. it's not just like, we're not just trying to move units. We're trying to foster 
an exchange, a catalyst, a community through these, you know, gifts. It's like a gift. Um, so there was always extra stuff and, and that just carried on through to, to Cubs. So, you know, the candy, the gum, it was like, well, yeah, we can like, you know, kind of attract people to come up to the stage. Cause you know, often when you're playing, there's you, you're on the stage and then there's a giant hole and then there's mm -hmm. the people sitting or standing at the back. So it's like, well, how do you get those people to, to come forward? Because, um, it's not that much fun to play to like a gaping hole <laughs> and if people don't know you they're going to hang back so how do you yeah mm -hmm. how do you break down those barriers also you know how do you break down the barrier of audience versus person on the stage like you're literally standing above everybody mm -hmm. on this thing so to equalize that you know if people come forward and you're you know touching hands when you're handing them something or people are asking for your set list or you're, you know, chucking stuff out into the audience. Yeah. It became sort of something that we did. And, um, yeah, it was, it was sort of organic. It was just like, how can we kind of make this fun? We'd go, you know, we had this kids club newsletter thing and we'd go shopping for little toys and stuff. And, <laughs> and, awesome. you know, the art was all hand done mostly by Robin. Um, and then we later started commissioning other artists like Fiona Smith and, um, Chantelle Doyle, um, to, to do cover art and things like that. And, you know, supporting other women and highlighting other people's, um, work and accomplishments and, and experiments, you know, it was all kind of just a, a grand experiment. And then people started giving us gifts back. Like we would get a lot of fan mail and which I still have, I have every piece of fan mail. We awesome. have, we have a really complete archive, which is something where we've been grappling with for a long time about what to do with it. Um, you know, we have every flyer, we have every write-up, we have every piece of fan mail, we have every gift. A lot of things have disappeared though. Like, um, like a lot of the, the suit, like our super suits that we used to wear, we had these, you know, these suits that were made for a video, these kind of long underwear with a cape. We were these superheroes for the flaming red bobsled um, video. And I don't know where those things have gone. I don't know. There's a lot of things that are missing. Um, bigger things like even like instruments and stuff have just kind of disappeared oh, over wow. the years, but, um, we have all the kind of ephemera stuff and, and people would give back, like you give, they give. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize, um, because I was ambitious and I did want to be famous on a certain level. And, and it was a conflictive emotion for me and certainly for Valerie and, um, Lisa G. Um, Robin was always pretty cool as a cucumber about it all, but you know, you're up there on this thing. You you want people to look at you, but then it's also really kind of like a weird feeling. It's sort of like, why do I need this? Like, it's so embarrassing. Like, what? I'm I'm no different than everybody else. Like, why am I up here? So there's this kind of weird thing you go through, and I don't know if people talk that much about it, but it was it was a big thing. And and you know, with with Valerie, the, the more popular we got the more she wanted to step back it was mm. not something she ever wanted to do and she was very clear about it from the beginning but i was like oh but come on like this is happening this is amazing <laughs> isn't it and for her it was like no it's actually not amazing i don't want to tour i don't want to you know be in this crush of people i don't want to um you know be doing interviews all the time like there was just certain things that i and i couldn't understand it at the time and strangely the same thing sort of happened with lisa like she didn't you know, the more, the more famous quote unquote, we got, the more um, intense it got for her to just kind of deal with this. And, and so that was something that it took me a long time to learn that more is not necessarily better. Um, that putting yourself in these highly competitive situations where you always have to do better than you did the time before, sell more records or compare yourself to other bands, it becomes a little bit toxic. And it's not healthy, even though like there's so many beautiful things about it. And like I said, I love to tour. I love being in a different town every place, but that's not for everybody. It's not necessarily a good thing for everybody. And so again, what took me a long time to realize it wasn't like how many records we sold that was important. It wasn't how many shows we did or who we played with. What was important about Cub, what was magical about Cub and what still is amazing about this band um, that even I am in awe of is that it it encouraged other people to do stuff. Like it wasn't about what we did. It was the fact that people could see this on stage, um, you know, a Japanese Canadian guitarist, um, you know, people that um, were queer, people that were BIPOC, people that were, um, you know, not the traditional thin, um, you know, rock star with a bunch of makeup on. Like we were, we were different and, and we were, um, because that's all we kind of knew how to be. We didn't really know how to be anything other than what we were, you know? So, and that I think was the the catalyst that 
open it up for other people to say like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, it makes me cringe a little bit now. Early interviews, we would often talk about how we couldn't play our instruments. And I think what we were trying to do was to say that you don't have to be a professional to make a band. You don't have to have all these chops to make a song, but it does, you know, we, that was a point that maybe we could have like laid off of a little bit. Like now when mm. I listen, it's just like, oh gosh, like, you know, <laughs> we don't have to, but you know, at the time, you know, you're sort of doing this and trying to kind of undercut the criticisms before it's going to come to you. Like, oh, well, you can't play. It's like, we know that. And that doesn't mean that we can't be in a band and that people won't respond to this music. Um, but then sometimes, you know, like with any other um, thing in um, a performative situation, those quotes kind of, you know, get, picked up and then you're kind of tied to that and it's and sometimes it can be hard to shift and move beyond but you know even even to this day I, i'm meeting people saying like i started a band because of you or i put on shows because of cub or you know now my kids are listening to cub and now they're starting bands and 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 that's what it is that's that's our legacy and that's the thing that i'm really really proud of is just that you know it was a moment in time where everybody could get in on on the fun Speaking of being different, um, sometimes different can lead to dangerous situations. The amount of touring you guys did, did you ever find any kind of really tough situations where things got a little dicey? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think there were different experiences based on, you know, our different personalities in the band. I know that sometimes things for all of us, for different reasons at different times, could feel very overwhelming. We were never, I would say, we were never in a position of, um, danger. We did do pretty much all the work ourselves. You know, Grant would book the tours um, in the beginning from uh, home in Vancouver. And then later we um, linked up with Margie Alban, who had a, a company, a business called Do It Booking. And she booked a lot of the more hardcore uh, punks on the on the lookout label. But she was amazing. She was this very gentle, but very strong woman uh, who was living in Salt Lake City at the time, which is just like, wow. whoa. And her family, I think, had come from Ecuador. So she found herself in this <laughs> very strange place and, and just started this, this booking agency. And she, and she was a great negotiator and very firm and very organized. Um, so it was great to work with her. But so we had a lot of support in that way. But on the road, like a lot of times we were just by ourselves. We didn't, mm. you know, sometimes Bill would come along to drive. A couple of times we tried to hire sort of someone to come along to tour manage and they would never really do much. So 
we, I don't, you know, there, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we started getting uh, known for this, but there were times where we would let people go in the middle of tours. One person we dropped off at a gas station somewhere in like <laughs> rural Ontario. We're just like, that's it. No more. Like you're like out of here because, you know, we, we were serious about it. Like it was playful and stuff, but the band, you know, all the money we made, we never divided the money. All the money went back into the band. And mm. so the band would support us when we were on tour, everything from like toothpaste to tampons to gas was paid for by the band. And so, and we worked hard, you know, the money went back into it. And so if someone was hired that was doing less than what we could do ourselves, we just couldn't really justify that. And it's not like we, you know, right. we paid ourselves $15 a day when we were on the road. Like that was our little stipend that we paid ourselves and we got by on that. And, you know, you'd have to kind of plan for when you weren't home with someone sublet or whatever. So, you know, Lisa and I did all the driving. Robin didn't have a driver's license. So Robin oh, wow. actually had the job where she had to sit in the, <laughs> we were so strict. Like it was just very <laughs> funny, this, this kind of model that we had, but Robin had to sit in the passenger seat and she had to be the map reader. Um, so she basically got no sleep because she couldn't drive. She always had to be there, right? Um, because we would either be driving or sleeping half the time. And then, you know, she'd have to read the map and, uh, you know, was responsible for putting in the music that the driver wanted to hear. We had all these like funny little goofy things we would do. Um, but it was, you know, it was, we worked hard. So um, we, we would get fed up sometimes. Like there literally were times where people would say like, uh, you know, sound guys, it was primarily sound men at that point, not a lot of women in that realm. Um, and, you know, people would say things like, oh, you should be in the kitchen or like girls don't belong oh, really? here or just really kind of disregard, you know, if you'd ask for something like, oh, could I have more of that in the monitor? And we were, again, very generous, mellow people. We didn't pitch fits. We didn't, you know, we didn't demand things. We were very easygoing, but there would be some points where we were just like, wow, like really, you know, and it would, <laughs> it would depend on, on the day and the time you'd meet people that would, you know, say shit but not very often really you know nico famously punched out somebody at a show in texas he was like show us your tits show us your tits you know that was on a, a bill with the queers and the muffs and generally those shows were great huh. but sometimes there were a lot of people there for the queers at some of these shows and you know they're just idiot dudes and she actually went up and like punched someone in the wow. face because she did not put up with anything you know she was very scrappy she had kind of you know grown up kind of parenting herself in a lot of ways. So she just, you know, there's, there was no nonsense and she was strong. She was very tough. And so, you know, someone generally had our back, either one of each other, you know, we would kind of try to support each other or, and, you know, we were pretty tight out there um, or, you know, someone from one of the other bands or, you know, often you were traveling with other, other bands and that Muffs Queer, Queers Cubs tour was amazing um, because, um, the Muffs had this great infrastructure. They had a really amazing sound man and they had this great roadie. Um, Bobby Mack was a sound guy and, and Kyle Knutson was the roadie. And it really became like a family and everybody really looked out for each other. And, and that just felt like this is what it's supposed to be like this. I could mm. on this tour, I could be out here forever because every day we're having fun. Every night I'm watching, you know, some of my favorite bands play their songs again and again. Um, you know, Ronnie and I were falling in love. Like it was this whole just, you know, there there are these magical moments where even when you're in them, you're like, oh my gosh, this is nice. a rare and special thing. And that month seemed to last like two years. It was just wow. so amazing that tour. Um, but, you know, generally there were hard times. It was just, you know, really, sometimes it was just being on the road. It wasn't so much dangerous. Um, there was, you know, a couple of times we were slipping and sliding in ice. There were a couple of times where we were not getting along as a band and, and just not, um, being able to communicate effectively because we were so tired and stressed out. We had, you know, a van transmission go out and the mechanics kind of robbed us. And, you know, there's wow. things like that that are kind of like, oh, but, but as far as just in general, no, I would say the scene was very supportive at that time and, and, and safe. And we were in general treated um, respectfully. And um, again, there was just no denying the appeal of this band. Like, you, you know, the fact that we would headline, you know, and, you know, 800 people would turn out on a Tuesday night in Edmonton or something. Again, it's just like, wow, you know, you just cannot, I cannot believe it even to this day. So yeah, we were, we were uh, pretty, pretty lucky. You mentioned Nico there. That's also kind of a, a big part of the Cub kind of history is, is Nico touring with you guys and being a a member of the band in, in a few ways. Um, I also read that she did some drum parts on, pre, on um, Betty Cola. 
She did. Yeah, that's how we met her. Um, Dave, we okay. were embarking on a, it was our first tour as a little West Coast tour um, from, you know, basically Olympia to, uh, I think we got as far as San Francisco on that tour. Um, and uh, again, Valerie did not want to tour. So Dave Carswell said that he would play drums and um, he was in the Smugglers and the Evaporators and had a recording studio you know really good friend and grant came along as our tour manager and that's the, <laughs> that's the tour where we met larry livermore and you know we're at gilman oh, wow. street and all these things the high fives and um we actually opened up for doa and like some really weird places like stockton and like just really <laughs> crazy medford oregon like these really old <laughs> punks who also were very nice to us but anyways um so the first stop was olympia and dave was and we were doing a little session with pat malley from yo-yo records he had a little studio at the back of the capitol theater and invited us to record a little bit for a compilation and um dave was hung over and he couldn't play the drums <laughs> and at that point he was had just uh i think he was just starting uh dating nico and so we'd never met her and he said oh well nico plays drums like maybe she'd do it i said yeah get her in here so she came in <laughs> and just you know sat down and just you know she had a very kind of four on the floor drumming style is you know super just straight ahead and not too complicated and she just sat her butt down on that drum throne and knocked it out and and so and then we were friends with her and then when we needed someone to come on our first big cross-country canadian tour we asked her and she said sure and she was again she was much quite a bit younger than me i mean she's four hmm. or five years younger than me so she was young she was like you know barely 20 wow. i feel like and and just up for the adventure and that was her first tour and she you know sang on stage in winnipeg uh, she, she sort of sang one of the cub songs uh, that was her first time singing on stage and oh, wow. you know even then she just again had so much energy and so much um drive and and so much kind of resilience you just thought wow this this person is is going places While we're on the topic of Nico, and you you mentioned Grant there, of course Grant details a, a great story in his book about when the Smugglers and Cub went on tour, and the Smugglers would get kind of merch jealous. Do you recall this? And Nico uh, wanted to take on and fight each one of the Smugglers collectively. Do you recall any of this? I do. It was you kind share of one of those, story? yeah, one of those uh, memorable nights. I think it was Windsor. We were there, and and it was a tour where you know it's kind of like the the star is born. Uh, moment where one band is kind of i mean the thing with the smugglers is that it's not like they ever ascended and descended they were always just very steady you know they were just like a machine right till the very end their you know audiences were there and growing and different people coming in and out but at this point like they had really helped us a lot they you know open you know given us this opening slot on their tour grant was booking the shows you know and i had this history with dave and, and nick and some of the other people in the band and so they were extremely generous and um but we started kind of outselling them on merch because we were you know we were getting a lot of play um i think betty colo had probably just come out or something you know it was um it was a moment um for us and we had not been across canada before so people were excited to see us and showing up and 
And uh, it's always, yeah, I think it's always a little hard when your opening band starts kind of outselling, you know, <laughs> kind of was getting yeah. to this point where they were just like, oh, you know, um, even though they were still being very kind. Um, but yeah, and I think <laughs> things just sort of came to a head that night. And, and for some reason, they thought that because we would sell their merch, you know, that's another thing you do. You sell merch for the other band when they're on stage and they sell merch for you unless you have a merch person. But again, it's, none of us had that. So it's just what you do. But they thought that we were undercutting their sales at the um, to, to push more of our stuff. But really, and they could see this because they were on stage and this was was going on and, and they could, you know, see this exchange happening where it seemed like we were saying like, oh no, don't buy smuggler shirts. Oh, but here are some beautiful <laughs> cup shirts. But it turned out it was, it was for these women that, you know, the, the, the smuggler shirts were too big. It was a size thing. It wasn't even like, it's like, okay, well then I can't get this. Well, I'll get that. Like I'll support anybody. It wasn't like they were even diehard fans of either band. I think it was just like a, one of those moments. And, and so then, yeah. And then bees, who's the most like level-headed person of them all. He was kind of the one that I, maybe something else was going on that day, but he was kind of the, at the end of his rope. And I think he's actually the one that accused and then Robin cried. And then as soon as that happened, Nico was like, nah, like, just, you know, close ranks, like do you do That's not awesome. make my girl cry. And so that was it. And then they, they backed off and then, you know, finally, the the truth came out and they were embarrassed and and whatever but you know again this is the thing like being on the road like the small things can become very big things you're mm -hmm. you're super tired you're on the go you're drinking too much you're doing you know who knows what else the you're in these intense situations with people and then you're performing and again there's that whole thing like oh like me and the audience like our songs like who's paying attention who's buying records like there is that again it's it's punk and it's and it's um you know, it's DIY, but it, there also is that capitalist model to it, like, like it or not, you know, and, and that is, again, ultimately something that I had a real problem with. Um, and it's something that kind of not drove me out, but it's, it's a reason that I stopped kind of doing things in that way, because I didn't want to mm. feel like I wasn't good enough, or I wasn't selling enough, or, oh, last time we did this, and this time we're only doing this. And, you know, again, the Vapors have that song, Half Empty Halls. Sooner or later, you're going to be playing to half empty halls, right? So it is this thing, but why is it that sort of trajectory? Like you start, you peak, and then you go down. Like, why can't it just be a continual evolution? So I feel that now, like, you know, all these years later, I'm still writing songs, I'm still making music, I'm still touring, mainly with film things, not music things. And now I go to places where I get to stay in community for a week or a month or sometimes even three or four months. And and I get to to be in a place and appreciate it and, and meet people and really get to know them. So I've tried to kind of re take the stuff I love and, and leave the stuff that I found was a little toxic and, and damaging. It made me a, a sort of a, a kind of person that I wasn't always proud to be. And, mm. uh, and it, and it made me sometimes sacrifice my, my relationships or, or friendships or, or my clarity of vision in, in pursuit of something, um, that ultimately is entirely elusive and, um, so transitory. So what's left at the end <laughs> of the day, the friendships and these amazing moments and, 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 and the energy of the time, not how many records you sold, not how much merch money you made, like all that stuff is like, who knows, who cares, does not matter. It's, it's, the, it's the experience of, of the moment that's, mm -hmm. that counts, you know. Just to put a button on kind of merch, uh, whose stroke of genius was Cub Pop? Oh, I think that was something we just kind of cooked up all together. I, I, I think that was kind <laughs> of a Bill, Randy, Robin, and, and me. We were going nice. back and forth to Seattle a lot at that time to see all those bands, um, you know, early Nirvana shows when they were playing in these auto oh, wow. garages. And um, hmm. I remember seeing the Melvins at the Central Tavern where they just like the force of the music just like blew you out of the room it was kind of one of these long narrow rooms and, and we love the screaming trees and we love the fastback so we we're going back and forth and you know sub pop was barely established so we were just like oh let's make this joke and and they you know again they were very cool about it everyone always nice. had a good laugh there was never any like mm, you know kind of thing i think everyone knew no lawsuits so, threatened and... no none of that what was that kind of like that kind of early 90s seattle scene yeah, well, there was, you know, kind of two things going on simultaneously. There was like the grunge stuff. And then there was also um, K Records, Yo-Yo Records and Riot Girl. So those things were kind of ascending at the same time. And then there was like the just kind of the older school poppy stuff, like the Fastbacks and the Young Fresh Fellows. And hmm. again, everybody supported everybody. It wasn't like, ooh, you only go to this. Like it was sort of, it wasn't, you know, that sort of thing that you heard about later, like all the frat guys that, you know, hopped on the bandwagon for nevermind. It wasn't that. It was just like, yeah, like these all ages kind of 
sweaty, kooky shows that, you know, cost you a couple of bucks to get in and everyone was just there and, and seeing each other and, and supporting each other and recording together and, you know, and, and yeah, we were kind of known as, you know, the Vancouver contingent, you know, we'd all kind of come <laughs> down and I was the editor of Discorder for part of that time, the, the magazine that came out from the radio station. And, you know, we were all linked to the, you know, again, Randy and Bill and Robin and I all linked to the radio station. So we knew these people, we were, you know, Robin was, I think she was the, person who was charting all this stuff, you know, she was like the music director. So like, you know, we just knew each other and it was, yeah, very supportive and fun. And you just whip down there for the weekend or the night, like Randy had some kind of van, minivan, you know, that belonged to his dad or something. And so we'd hop in the minivan, we'd go down there, he'd drive and, and yeah, you just go and hang out and be goofy. And, you know, it was just, it was fun. And Bellingham, there was a whole scene in Bellingham and that whole like uh, garage shock stuff. Like there was just all kinds of music going on. Girl trouble. We love girl trouble. You know, we loved like just getting wild and dancing and, and uh, drinking and hanging out and hooting and hollering. And it was just, yeah, it was a great time. Now we talked about Betty Cola a little bit in passing, but can you talk a bit more about um, that release? I mean, I know you had a couple seven inches out before that, but can you shed uh some more light into your kind of first foray into the full length kind of CD world. Well, it was, it was sort of a compilation. So it was the first two seven inches mm. were on there. And, and again, we were always just trying to pack it all on. Like why have a two song <laughs> seven inch when you can have a six song seven inch, you know, it was just like nuts. And, you know, we'd scratch secret messages into the vinyl and then like what color vinyl and how many fold outs and how many stickers can we shove in there? So it was a very maximalist approach to very nice. minimalist music, right? Music was lo-fi, <laughs> the packaging was hi-fi and, um, and everybody loved that. So I think, yeah, the first two seven inches were on there and we were just recording like tons of songs. The songs were short. So, you know, in a three hour session, we could bust out 10 songs, you know, like we'd re we were rehearsed. It wasn't like we weren't writing in the studio. There was nothing complicated. I mean, this is kind of like one of those slightly embarrassing side notes, but for the first two records we had, they weren't even mastered because none of us, even Mint, <laughs> you would think that you're supposed to master a record. We had this label, we're selling all these copies, but they're like unmet, we didn't know, right? So you're just kind of figuring out, it's like, oh, who knew you're supposed to like hold stuff back or like, I don't know, we just, we never held back in Cub. We just let it all out to, for the good <laughs> or the bad. Like that was it. There was no plan, there was no marketing plan. The only marketing plan was like, give the people, what they want give the people what we want give everybody something to to celebrate and smile about so yeah i think uh we just uh, that stuff would have been all pretty much rec uh, recorded at adams but then some of the yo-yo stuff was on there and again everyone was cool it was like oh yeah i'll put this out but you can put it on on your label too it was like oh no you must not you know put that out because you recorded it at my studio everyone's like sure put it out so and then even i think that is the record that had a a cover of a cub song by nfa a band that we just met on tour in the maritimes and they did a cover we're like we'll put your cover on our record why not you know like let's just <laughs> do it it's fun um so there were no rules we you know we realized like who's who makes the rules like who says you know which did right, get us right. into trouble because we didn't know things like there was a time we were headlining the commodore and then uh i think lois was coming to town like the week before and we just played with lois we opened for lois at another club and the people at the commodore were like what you just played another show and you're the headliner and and they punished us they wouldn't pay us the really? full amount because they said like that would have damaged the draw but like why wow. why would it have damaged the draw when it was this amazing bill with cub and the smugglers and whoever else Wavell's French I don't know it was this amazing bill and it was full I mean like it was great but it was like no you will be punished because you did not play by these you know capitalist huh, rules so you know yeah. but we didn't know and no one said to us like oh you know what you're not like no, and I was even dating someone who was a, a band manager at the time, and he he didn't say anything to me. So on some levels, it's good because we made our own mistakes. And, you know, like we turned down a, a show with Beck because we were just kind of like, eh, you know, <laughs> probably not the best, uh, you know, uh, decision. But we just didn't feel like it for whatever reason. I can't remember wow. why, but it was just like, you know, he phoned us and said, like, oh, my girlfriend has one of your songs on her answer machine. Huh. And I love you guys. You're so cool. And we're like, thanks. He's like, do you want to open? And it's like, no, we're not going to do that or whatever. <laughs> but so, you know, it's just it's kooky. You think like, wow, you know, and people would constantly be writing me these well-meaning fans saying, you know, if you just wore some more makeup, if you just like took, <laughs> took a little bit more care with your clothes, like you could get somewhere. 
<laughs> why and katie katie lang's manager called us at one point about did we want to do all these soft seat shows it's like why like why does art bergman want us to open for him he doesn't want us to open like the manager just is smelling something like spicy in the air and wants to get a piece of it it's just it, why like right. we just tried not to do things that didn't make sense and sometimes maybe that was silly or maybe we lost some opportunities that way but if it didn't make sense it just didn't make sense to us it just didn't make sense well, one thing that did make sense, though, was Hole also asked you guys to open up for you, and you accepted that gig. you remember how that came to play exactly? Well, you know, I someone told me at one point that Kurt was a fan of Cub, which kind of makes sense because he was really into <laughs> Shonen Knife. And again, he would have known Pat and Calvin. You know, everybody knew each other. So, I mean, I'm sure maybe someone put something on a mixtape, which is how a lot of people heard about us, or... Like, you know, we got played on college radio. That's how John Flansburg heard New York City. He was driving, heard hmm. that song wow. on college radio and pulled <laughs> over and like, you know, found a payphone and called the station and, you know, asked the person wow. what it was, which is, you know, amazing. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think he was just probably maybe new and told her like, oh, there's this band, you should get them. And, you know. So that was that. It's not like we hung out. They didn't want to hang out. You know? <laughs> a lot of people don't want to hang out. But, uh, you know, we would hang out. We would hang out. Right. Exactly. And that was always important to us. If anyone wanted to talk to us after the show or anyone wanted something signed or anyone wrote to us, we wrote back. You know, sometimes we nice. would have, you know, we'd be in the van and there'd be 400 postcards that we'd have to wow. write on tour and just be like, oh, the postcards. But it was important to us. Like, you took the time to write to us. You took the time to come to the show. You spent money. You're buying something the least we can do is say thank you and who are you and and what are you into and you know like that nice. that was that was part of it before we move off of uh, uh betty cola though there's a track that i wanted to highlight which is uh pretty pictures mm -hmm. off that record um what do you remember about writing recording anything you can kind of share about that tune yeah that song is interesting to me because people really like this song and it's it's um it's very simple um it does have that really nice part uh dave carswell plays drums on that recording um mm. and uh plays the little bells part in the middle so it, it does have a nice little um sweetness to it um thanks to mm -hmm. what he brought to that track that song was written um actually when i was in uh los angeles and mm. uh bill baker from mint and i were dating before the label started and then during uh, the beginning of the label and um he we i met him out at uh, the cmj conference he'd gone out earlier and then i took the train across the country with my sister and robin and randy flew in it was i think our first cmj and we were really excited and we were gonna take cubs for seven inch round i remember we took one to the sassy offices there was that zine sassy <laughs> they had cute boy alert we thought well what about cute girl alert like let's get in <laughs> nice. we never heard from them of course but anyways um but when we got there um we, Bill and I, like the first thing that happened was we broke up after being wow. together for, um, I think about six years. And, uh, wow. and we were, you know, we'd been very much in love and we kind of grew up together in some ways and started, you know, all these projects that became very influential in our lives, you know, with, with each other's mutual support. So, um, it was a bit of a heartbreaker, but it was also my first time in New York. So I was like, oh, I can't process this right now because so many amazing things are happening. And also this incredibly sad thing is happening at the same time. So then after I took the train back across the country and I ended up in Los Angeles um, for a while mm -hmm. and I was there to visit a, a friend, but I, he was working a lot. So I spent a lot of time alone. So I would um, take the bus out to, um, Venice Beach and I would just sit on the beach hmm. for long periods of time and just and watch the clouds and and just sit there and think about the end of this relationship so hmm. and so that's when I wrote that song and so you know it's um it's special to me because it is kind of a a private love letter between Bill and I um but people really people really respond to that tune and and uh and like it a lot and and so I I love it when the personal kind of becomes uh, something that other people, for whatever reason, it resonates with with other people.
thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends, take care. Flying pocket ride.